Well, it has been a few weeks that we've, since we've been in Ephesians. It does seem like quite a long time, actually. I'm excited to be back in the text this evening, and it would be appropriate to remind ourselves of where we've come from. Chapter 1, as you'll remember, Paul declares that the Ephesians are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He gives one of the most extended and richest eulogies we have in all of Scripture, unpacking one gospel truth after another towards the believers in Ephesus with the intention that they would respond with praise. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of how He has blessed us, we are to live lives that bless Him. That's Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. And then you'll remember Paul records for us his prayer for the Christians there in Ephesus and simply stated his prayer is that they would know the blessings that they have received. Very simply stated, Paul prays that they would know how blessed they truly are so that, again, their lives would be to the praise of God's glory. As we turn the corner into chapter 2 of the letter, Paul begins to address some more specific issues, particularly as they relate to the congregation there in Ephesus. One of the issues that concerns the Apostle Paul is that of unity. I've said several times that maybe the overarching theme of this letter is the church. It's difficult to pin down because there are so many theological themes throughout this letter, but maybe if there is one that stands above all the others, it is the church. Paul's concern that the Ephesians would understand the church they would have a robust theology of the church, and that they would practice a good ecclesiology, that their actions toward one another, especially when they gather together, would reflect the gospel by which they have been saved. One of the issues that confronted them as Paul tackled this, this reality is that in the congregation were both Jews and Gentiles. And I do think it is difficult for us to really get our minds around how much of a hurdle this could have been for these first century believers. Jews and Gentiles who otherwise would have had nothing to do with one another now find themselves together worshipping each and every Lord's Day and being told that they are in fact brothers and sisters in Christ. They're being exhorted in much the same manner that we are exhorted each Sunday. They are being exhorted to live their lives with one another during the week. Paul is teaching them to share their lives with one another, to open up their lives toward one another, to lay down their lives for the sake of one another, and yet prior to their understanding of the gospel, they would have had nothing to do with one another. The Jew-Gentile problem is actually one that we see woven throughout many New Testament texts, and it comes up here again in Ephesians chapter 2. 
And Paul's goal, if you drop your eyes down to the very last verse of this chapter, his goal is that they would know, verse 22, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So one of his emphases is unity in the gospel, unity in the local church, both practiced and embraced and adored as an expectation. And to that end, Paul begins in chapter 2 by laying out the common depravity that we all have apart from any work of Christ in our lives. That was the last sermon Verses 1 through 3, we are all alike sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Not one of us has any ounce of righteousness in and of ourselves that we can bring to the table. And because of that common depravity, that should compel us towards a sense of unity. We know where we have come from. Here, in verses 4 through 7, he progresses the argument and says, not only is it true that we are all fallen, all sinners, all rebels, but we all enjoy a common salvation. We all enjoy the same gospel, the same means by which we are reconciled to God. It is not a different means of salvation for the Jew than it is for the Gentile. It's critically important as we study these few verses tonight that we see them in their broader context. The broader context is an argument toward unity in the gospel. And as a means of getting there, Paul labors the fact that everybody who is in Christ has been saved by the same gospel. And thus the implication as we consider this glorious gospel is that we would love one another. It really is that simple. As we sit and we bask in the grace of the gospel through these verses, and we look at our neighbor this very evening, and we understand the person beside me, in so much as they are a believer, has been saved by the same gospel that has saved me, it should only ever result in an impulse of love and affection toward one another. Or, to put it another way, if we truly understand that we have all been saved by grace, there is absolutely no room for disunity in the local church. Before we walk through the text, it is just worthy of a comment on that doctrine of unity as it relates to the entirety of God's Word. It is not just a doctrine that we find in Paul's writings. The exhortation towards unity in the local church is not restricted to Ephesians nor to Paul's writings, but it flows all through the Scriptures. As I have taught through the Old Testament and the New, I am struck more and more how much of a priority it is in God's mind that His people would be unified. In the Old Testament Scriptures and in the New, one constant emphasis that you see all the way through redemptive history is that God's people would be unified. God desires that His people would be holy, and He desires that they would be of one mind, one spirit. 
If you come here this evening knowing that in some way, albeit subtle, albeit slight, you are the cause of an expression of disunity in this body, know that that does not please God. It causes him great grief. If in any way you are content to bring about disunity in the body, however small it may seem, maybe with just one other brother, one other sister, not truly reconciled with one another for some reason, understand that that is unacceptable before God. He desires holiness. He desires unity. And so it should be of the utmost priority that we are ever striving to be of one mind and one spirit as we gather together Sunday by Sunday and many times in between. How do we get there? Well, we would do well to consider the common salvation that we have in Christ. And that is the impetus of Paul's argument this evening, verses 4 through 7, he simply walks us through the gospel with the desire that we would be built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we can divide the text into three, beginning with what Paul says first and foremost about God the Father. Verse 4, he begins, but God... And it is appropriate to stop there and just to ponder those two words. We could easily spend our whole evening just thinking about those two words. But God. Paul writes these words, do not forget, to form a sharp juxtaposition with the doctrine of sin that he has just given us in verses 1 through 3. We are all utterly depraved lifeless, dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. The point is, God is a God who takes the initiative. He is proactive and not reactive. He did not wait for us to express a desire for salvation. We never could have because we were spiritually lifeless. God looked upon us and he acted so as to bring about salvation in our lives. It speaks more than anything about the nature of the God by whom we have been saved. As we read in Genesis chapter 1, he is a God who speaks and his will is enacted. God spoke and creation came into being. In the same way, God looks upon the dead, the dead lifeless sinner and he acts so as to raise him or her to newness of life. Now, why would God act in that manner? The answer is, verse 4, because He is rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy. That word mercy we use all the time. Remind yourself often of what it means. This speaks of God's disposition towards those who are in a terrible state of affairs. It speaks of God being favorably disposed towards those who are in a wretched condition. And not only is God merciful, but Paul says he is rich in mercy. 
And so again, we see not only the character of God being put on display before us, but also the gospel is now beginning to be unfolded. But God, He took the initiative when you were unable to. You had no cause to concern yourself with Him, but God, and He did so, He acted because He is rich in mercy. He is overflowing in kindness and He disposed Himself favorably towards you. Again, we might pause and say, but why did He do that? God, being rich in mercy, why did He look upon my lowly estate so as to raise me to newness of life? Paul continues anticipating our very question because of the great love with which He loved us. Do not overlook the small words of Scripture. It is especially important in the epistles. Every genre of the Bible commends a different approach, and when you're in the epistles, I would exhort you to pay particular attention to the small words, the buts and the because and the therefore and the for and the by, because it is these small words that often form the hinge points in an argument. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, and there is God's impetus. It is because He is a loving God that He so acted towards you so as to save you. In fact, we might go further and say it's not simply because God is loving, but as we know from elsewhere, it is because God is love. There are four God is statements in the Bible. God is spirit. God is a consuming fire. God is light. And God is love. And as we read two times in John's first epistle, God is love. We are being led into the very being, the very heart of God the Creator. He is in His very essence love. And one of the most spiritually rewarding disciplines that you can pursue is to simply meditate on the love of God. One of the most spiritually rewarding and fruitful disciplines that you can give your time to is to meditate upon the fact that your God is love. In accordance with the same logic by which Paul prays in Ephesians 1, you don't need to do anything, you simply need to know something. You have to know that your God is love. And theologians will often dissect that love and speak of the manifold love that we see being exercised by our God who is love. They begin with an inner Trinitarian love. God is love, which is to say He is love apart from you. God is love before you were created. God is love before you were in need of Him. God is love before you acted in rebellion. Which tells us that there is an inner Trinitarian love that is enjoyed and delighted in by God Himself. 
God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit eternally and perfectly loving one another. Then we could move out from there and say the next layer by which we see and experience God's love is a a general love exercised towards creation. Consider that God was not bound to create the universe. He was perfectly happy in and of Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly loving one another, and yet He acted so as to create. There is a love in His created work that we see shed abroad to all of the universe. His created love, the love experienced by creation, I should say. Beyond that, we could point to another layer of God's love which is received in a special way by humanity. We begin with the Godhead and we then see love being exercised towards creation generally and now specifically towards humanity. Insomuch as He decreed that we would sit above the created order and we would receive the special privilege of being made in His image, we understand a unique kind of love that comes to mankind and mankind alone. Distinct and different from the love that is experienced by the rest of creation, this is another layer of love that comes from God. And then there is the ever-so-special love that is only experienced by the elect. Different and distinct from the love that is experienced by all of humanity is a love that comes through the gospel to those whom God has chosen before this foundation of the world. It is not experienced by those whom he has not predestined for salvation. There is a special love for his children. And Paul explains the gospel in terms of that love. You were a wretched sinner and you had no hope. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. That was the impetus by which He acted. It is the reason that you are here this evening. And one reason that I say one of the most spiritually rewarding disciplines that you could ever give yourself to is to simply ponder and meditate upon the love of God is because, at least in part, there is in our sinful flesh built into us a readiness to distrust God. One of the reasons it is wise to set your mind so as to consider the manifold depths and riches of God's love is because intuitively in our sinful natures we tend to distrust God. We tend to doubt His love. It was introduced into our DNA around about Genesis chapter 3. When the serpent said to Eve, did God really say? The serpent there is assaulting the character of God, not merely causing Eve to doubt the command but so also causing Eve to doubt the character of her Creator. Is my God one who can be trusted? 
Is my God one who says one thing and means something altogether different? Am I certain of his love for me? And as she took of the fruit, and as Adam took of the fruit, and as sin came into the world, there is forever after, in every human being, a level of distrust towards God. We tend to doubt his love for us. And this is why Paul writes to the Romans, and he says, the evidence of God's love is found at the cross. You do not need to doubt him ever. Simply look to the cross and see that his love caused him to send his son so as to die for you. That is the most evident, most emphatic declaration of God's love for you as a Christian. Look to the death of Christ and see that God did not withhold his son, but willingly gave him for us. Will he not also with him freely give us all things? That is the argument. That's the logic that Paul employs there. And it should be the logic toward which we return every single day. Because in our flesh, we tend to doubt God. We either tend to doubt his love as it was manifested towards us in salvation, or more likely we doubt his ongoing abiding love towards us in so much as we press on in the race of sanctification. We rise up each and every day to live afresh to the glory of Christ at some level in our heart, doubting whether God is really for us today. And so the way that works itself out in practice, ever so subtly, is we begin to behave with a motive, a desire to impress God, to win his favor, to somehow get him on our side, forgetting the fact that he is already on our side. We already have his favor. We have his approval. We have his love in the gospel. I remember being told many years ago of a story that reminds me of this very truth. A family had adopted a young boy into their home They had several kids already, and then they brought in this young boy who had had a terrible, terrible run for the few years that he had been alive. And so there were many, many problems with his behavior, his readiness to submit to authority, and he caused them great pain. And they knew that this would be what the first few years looked like, and It has always been their intention and their desire to adopt. And they trusted the Lord, they had prayed often, and they saw that this was an opportunity seemingly from Him, and so they ran towards this opportunity knowing that it would be hard, and sure enough, for the first few years, it was terribly hard. And then things slowly began to improve, and in the Lord's kindness, He provided a means for the parents to plan a wonderful, what they hoped would be, memorable vacation. They announced to all of their children that they would be headed off to Disneyland. In just a few months, when the summer holidays came around, they would be flying as a family and spending a few days there, and everyone, of course, was wonderfully excited. And then in the run-up, Just a few weeks prior to, the young boy disobeyed in a 
way that was far greater than he ever had done before. He dishonored his parents greatly. He caused them more pain than he ever had done before, and he brought great shame on the family. And in the days that followed, understandably, communication within the home was very difficult. The parents were grieving. They had seen so much improvement, and they don't understand why there had been this lapse, and the boy felt terribly over his sin. And then it got to the day before the trip. And the father initiated, he went up to the boy's room, and he sat down with him on the bed, and he said, son, you need to pack your suitcase because the trip is tomorrow. And he couldn't look at his dad, and so staring at the floor, he simply said, Dad, I just assumed you'd be leaving me behind. And there was a long silence, and then the dad said to him, Son, are you part of this family? And with tears in his eyes, he said, I am. And the dad said, So you're coming on the trip. And in a much greater way, God's love towards us never fails us. It came towards us when we were rebels. He sent his son to die for us, and now his love abides with us. And though God may discipline us, if we pursue sin, his love never, ever leaves us. And as you think about the manifold riches of God's love expressed towards you in the gospel, one of the consequences, one of the outworkings, one of the implications should be a love toward your brothers and sisters in Christ. As you look around you this evening, Everyone here who is a Christian has received exactly that same love. They haven't received a lesser expression of that love. They have not been saved by a different gospel. That same loving Heavenly Father that expressed His great mercy towards you is the same loving Heavenly Father that saved your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Paul's argument here is headed towards an exhortation for unity. He wants Jew and Gentile to be reconciled, to link arms truly as brothers and sisters in Christ. And though perhaps it may be difficult for us to understand exactly the barriers in that first century church, Undoubtedly, in every local church this day, there are tendencies towards disunity. Tendencies towards disunity that come about in many, many different ways. We give voice to our pride and our sin in many, many different ways. And Paul would exhort us this evening towards unity. A unity that begins with a consideration of God's love towards us through the gospel. But he goes on, that is not the sum total of his argument. 
He then speaks about the fact that we've been made alive together with Christ. Verse 5, even when you were dead in your trespasses, this God who was rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. And then Paul can't help himself. There is this parenthetical comment, this outburst. He's just reached the main verb in the sentence, and as soon as he gets there, he returns to the wonder of God's grace. By grace you have been saved. And then he picks up the thought and he says, and God raised us up with him, Christ, and seated us with him, Christ, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So Paul is now explaining further the realities of the gospel for us. Notice that sharp contrast. We were dead in our trespasses. That was the domain in which we existed. We could not leave it. We couldn't get away from it. But now we've been made alive together with Christ. And those two words, with Christ, undoubtedly invoke the whole in Christ motif. It is in Christ and with Christ and through Christ that we are believers this day. Through his life, death, and resurrection, by faith in him, we now enjoy newness of life with him. And what is particularly interesting is that that word, one word in the original, to be made alive together with, the Greek language is so wonderfully efficient, one word in the original, alive together with. It's a word, a verb that Paul has made up. It doesn't exist anywhere else. It is only found here in Ephesians and one other time in Colossians, also written by Paul. You cannot find it anywhere else in the Bible, far less anywhere else in all of the Greek literature that we have available. Paul finds cause to make a new word to speak about the wonders of the gospel. We have been made alive together with Christ. This is a unique privilege that cannot be claimed by anyone, no matter what their belief, in so much as they stand outside of the domain of the gospel. And notice, it is not restricted to that one idea to be made alive together with, but we were made alive with him. Verse 6, we were raised with him, and then again we were seated with him. Now here's what's even more interesting about Paul's thought. As you survey the with verbs in his writings, and there are many of them, many of these with verbs, things happening with Christ, they are usually restricted to speak about end time salvation. Paul is very fond of the with verbs, but he normally uses them to speak about our final glorification. So in Romans 8, just by way of example, he says we are co-heirs with Christ. That's just one example. Again, it's one verb, one word in the original, and it's speaking about an end time reality. 
But here, Paul says we are made alive with him, raised up with him, and seated with him, not speaking about final realities yet to be realized. These are present day realities for every Christian. This evening, you are alive with Christ. This evening, you have been raised up with him to newness of life. This very evening, in a way that perhaps we cannot fully comprehend, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul is probing here that wonderful doctrine of the Christian life where we understand the eschatological final blessings of salvation history to have come to us now. This would have been incomprehensible to the Old Testament Jews who kept reading their scriptures and they kept looking forward to the final day of salvation history when a a manifold treasury of blessings would be unleashed upon them and then you get to letters like Ephesians and Paul says you have them right now. The gospel has brought them near. You participate in these blessings right now. You've been made alive with Christ, raised up with Him, and seated with him. And as you understand and ponder and consider this reality of the Christian life, that we are partakers now of final salvation day blessings, you understand that in a sense we could say there is a portion of us already residing in glory. As we work through the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 of Ephesians, Something that I said a few times is that it's as if we have a portion, a slice of heaven inside of us. God has deposited the Holy Spirit within us as a seal of our salvation and as a guarantee of our inheritance. That's what Paul says in chapter 1. And it's as if we have a portion of heaven residing in us now. Well, this evening... We could say in like manner, it is as if there is a portion of our spirits, our souls, found place in glory right now. This is why the Christian understands intuitively that this life is not his home. This world as it stands today is by no means our home. From the moment of your new birth in Christ, the moment of your salvation, you intuitively understand you are an alien and a stranger in this world. You don't belong here. And indeed, the Holy Spirit gives you deep and persistent longings for glory. The Christian who is walking in step with the Spirit, who is attuned to God's grace, has deep and persistent longings for heaven. Groanings that are too deep for words and so often overflow within us and give us such joy because we know this life is not the sum total of God's plan for us. We have wonderful longings inside us towards a better reality that are a very gift of the gospel. Now, if I said to you this evening, do you think you are the only Christian who has ever lived 
that has experienced those longings. I hope that you would laugh at me. Do you suppose you are the only Christian who has ever lived, who has ever felt anything akin to what you feel when you yearn for Christ's return and the inauguration of his kingdom and the ushering in of the new heavens of the new earth? Are you the only Christian to feel those things? And you would laugh and say, I have no idea what would prompt you to ask that question. The reason is this. So often, as we allow expressions of disunity to creep in amongst us, we effectively behave as if we are on a tier above those against whom we hold a grudge. We behave in such a manner So as to say, those Christians who I don't see eye to eye with on everything, that I'm not truly united with, that I am not choosing to love, it is as if I have a special status in Christ that they don't have. Now, I don't imagine for one minute you would ever, ever say such things. But you have to understand every expression of disunity in the local church portrays such sentiments. Your behavior is speaking those truths. As if to say verses 4 and 5 and 6 are mine and mine alone. Or at the very least they are shared by a group of us but not shared by him or by her. I am choosing to treat them differently. I am refusing to run towards expressions of unity and love and affection and laying down my life for them. Therefore, I am saying in some way, I am privileged in my status in Christ above them. That is the reality of disunity within the local church. The local church is supposed to be a picture of heaven. The world is supposed to look in on us and see something remarkably and radically different. It is supposed to be a taste of heaven that you cannot find outside of these four walls, save in another local congregation. And by not pursuing unity with the utmost zeal, with the utmost fervency of spirit, you are portraying something different about the gospel and about the hope that we have in Christ. And so, as Paul is meandering and working towards this exhortation for unity in the church in Ephesus, the appropriate application this evening for you and for me is to look around you and to rejoice that everyone here who is a Christian has been made alive together with Christ by the same gospel that has saved you. That everyone here who is a Christian has been raised up with Christ just as you have. And that everyone here who is a Christian so also in some way is seated with Christ in the heavenly places just like you. And a proper meditation on those truths compels you towards love and unity in the local church. 
Well, Paul is not finished there. He goes on to say one last thought, verse 7. Again, it is critically important that we give attention to the small, perhaps seemingly incidental words, so that Paul is giving the reason that God, who is love, acted so as to raise us up and seat us with Christ, verse 7, so that, in order that, because the reason he did these things is that in the coming ages, referring to that final horizon of salvation history, in the coming ages, God would show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now just ponder that with me for a minute. Paul has said the reason God has acted in this way is so that in the future there will be a fuller manifestation of His grace towards us. Or a fuller recognition of His grace towards us, which is at times difficult to conceive. When we gather together on a Sunday... It is wonderful to stand here at the front because I benefit from the many, many voices that are singing in this direction. And there are times when I can't sing. There are times frequently when I stop singing because my heart is overjoyed at your singing. I will frequently stop singing and simply bask in the glory of your praise towards our God. And in that moment, I give thanks for you and I give thanks for God's grace in our lives. And so there is each and every Sunday a wonderful acknowledgement of his grace towards us. We're a loud church, and I give thanks for that. And each and every time we sing, there is an acknowledgement of His grace towards us. And at times I wonder, how could we possibly acknowledge your grace even more than we are right now? And yet somehow, Paul tells us, there is coming a day when there will be a greater acknowledgement of the riches of His grace that has come towards us through Christ. At the day of our consummation, when our salvation is consummated, we will see yet more fully His grace towards us in Christ. We will grow as if it were possible in our understanding of just how kind God has been to us. Now, earlier this evening, we read from Revelation chapter 5, which depicts something of that day. Linking those two texts together now, we read in Ephesians that there's a day coming when the manifold riches of God's grace will be more fully apprehended by the saints. In Revelation 5, we read of that day when the saints are gathered around the throne and they are all singing praises to Christ. 
And so just meditate on that thought for me again. As you think upon the reality of Christ's return and the consummation of salvation history, my guess is that all too often you think about those realities in a very individualistic manner. We commend you to ponder the blessed hope each and every Lord's Day in the evening. Set your mind to the return of Christ. And I wonder when we do that, just for a few seconds, where your heart goes. My guess is often it goes towards the reality of Christ's return as it relates to you and you alone. Yet another indication of just how individualistic is our Christianity. And as we were thinking about this morning, the New Testament and the Old Testament commends us towards a corporate working out of our faith. We are each individually saved as we individually put our faith in Christ and then we are brought into the body and we are told to work out our salvation and, uh, with fear and trembling to be sanctified arm in arm. Well, so also, as you set your mind on the return of Christ, allow your thoughts to be broadened to think about the return of Christ as it relates to his bride. Picture and meditate upon his glorious appearing, not only as it relates to you, but so also as it relates to your neighbor, the person sat beside you this evening. Think about the return of Christ as it relates to the body. And now think upon that glorious reality and again ask a good question of the text. Namely, as thousands upon thousands are gathered around Christ's throne and singing to Him with cleansed hearts, how did your neighbor get there? You know how you arrived there by grace and grace alone. How have you found yourself in that glorified state by grace and grace alone? How did your neighbor get there? You think this person got there by a different means? You think that person who you keep your distance from on a Sunday morning that you choose not to speak to, that you are willing to hold a grudge against God to glory by a different means? You think they've experienced a different path by which they are now around the throne with you? See, if it weren't for the fact that Christ is going to deal with all of our sins in an instant, I think that day might be a day of great embarrassment. Because now we're stood beside a brother or a sister that for some reason we are willing to live alongside of and yet in such a manner that we were not portraying a sense of real unity. You persisted in disunity and now you're stood beside them in glory. Shame on you. But Christ will deal with our sins gloriously in an instant. And so there we are beside them and just ponder with me as you set your mind towards that last day. How did they get there? Exactly the same way that you arrived. And so as you think about these wonderful realities that Paul compels us towards, one of the reflexes of your heart should be toward unity in the church. 
One of the impulses of your soul as you meditate upon the glorious gospel made effective for everyone here who is indeed a Christian is love towards your brothers and your sisters in Christ. However it may be accomplished, you lay down your life for the benefit of those whom God has brought you into community with. And as we strive for unity, and as we refuse to allow any expression of disunity, understand that your joy will increase. Your testimony to a watching world will be strong. And God will be greatly glorified. Let's pray to close. Father, we give you thanks this evening that we have such a great common salvation. There is a sense in which every single Christian has the same testimony. We were all sinners and we have all been saved by grace. You are a loving God and you have been a loving God towards each and every one of us. Without exception, those whom you have saved, you have raised to be alive together with Christ. You have seated us with him. And without exception, we will all one day see and appreciate more fully your kindness towards us in the gospel. As we see these verses as part of a broader argument toward unity, may we allow these truths to take full effect in our lives. Lord, humble us. Humble our pride. That we would ponder the gospel and run towards love for one another. We would ponder the gospel and joyfully lay down our lives for the benefit of one another. Striving for unity, knowing that you take great pleasure in it. It is where so much of our joy is to be found. It creates a wonderful and powerful testimony to the world. Be glorified. In this church we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.